1974, Wichita, Kansas was a fairly quiet, conservative city of just over 300,000. A large part of the workforce was employed in the aircraft industry. Back then, they called Wichita the air capital of America. The people were, by and large, hardworking and friendly. But beginning in 1974, things began to change. Neighbors began locking their doors. Citizens began to stock up on firearms and ammunition. People began paying more attention when they walked to their cars in parking lots. Because Wichita, Kansas had their own serial killer. It started in 1974, when a 15-year-old boy came home from school and discovered the bodies of his mother and father. He called the police, and they found the bodies of his little brother and sister in the basement. A young woman was stabbed to death in her home three months later. Then, nothing. But the killer would strike again, and again, and again, over the next 17 years. He bided his time, selected his victims carefully, and struck. All in all, at least 10 people would die. But unlike other serial killers, this monster hid in plain sight. And unlike other serial killers, he wanted credit for his deeds. He sent letters to the media, taunting the police, letting them know that he was much smarter than they were and they would never catch him. But in the end, it turned out he wasn't that smart. It took the police 31 years, but they did finally catch him. So mix yourself a homegrown Kansas cocktail the horse feather, and consider the case of Dennis Rader, the BTK killer. Dennis Rader was born in the small East Kansas town of Pittsburgh. Both parents worked and didn't have much time for him or his three brothers. Dennis resented his mother, in particular, for ignoring him. From a very young age, he harbored sadistic fantasies about kidnapping and torturing helpless women. He began acting these fantasies out by trapping small animals and torturing them. He stole women's clothes and underwear from neighbors' clotheslines and would sometime dress up in them as he spied on women in the neighborhood. Sometimes he would take his fantasies even further and tie himself up and put ropes around his neck while engaging in self-stimulation. This was his secret life. He managed to keep it hidden from families and friends and co-workers. Following his high school graduation, he enrolled at Kansas Wesleyan University, but dropped out after one year. He joined the Air Force and served from 1966 until 1970, and then returned to the Wichita area. He married Paula Dietz in 1971, and they eventually had two children. In 1973, he earned an associate's degree in electronics from a community college 
and graduated from Wichita State University with a bachelor's degree in the administration of justice in 1979. From 1974 until 1988, he worked for ADT Security, installing home security alarms. In 1991, he took a job as an animal control officer and code compliance officer in Park City, Kansas, a suburb of Wichita. Raider's children described him as a loving and very involved father. He was active in community affairs and Cub Scouts and very involved in his church, Christ Lutheran. He spent many hours volunteering and was elected president of the church council. Most people, though not all, described him as normal, polite, and well-mannered. And while he never shared his dark fantasies with everyone, some people did see another side to him. He was arrogant, a know-it-all, if you will. Part of his job as a code compliance officer was to patrol neighborhoods and look for things like uncut grass and poorly maintained property. Residents recalled seeing him on his hands and knees measuring the height of their grass, and if it was too high, he would issue a citation. He would sometimes get into arguments with homeowners and could be especially harsh when dealing with young single women. He seemed to enjoy using his authority to intimidate them. Perhaps that should have been a clue. In late 1973, he was working at a grocery store. He saw a mother and daughter shopping and was attracted to the young girl especially. He began to follow them as they walked home. He found out where they lived. He went to the library and using city directories and telephone books, he found out their names. The mother was Julie Otero. Her daughter was 11-year-old Josephine. On the morning of January 15, 1974, Joseph Otero took his three older children to school. At some point, Raider broke into the house and cut the telephone lines. When Joseph returned home, Raider surprised him with a 357 Magnum. He told him he was hungry and broke. He wanted their car and some money. He would have to tie them up, he told them, but he wouldn't hurt them. So he tied them all up in the bedroom. Then he put a plastic bag over Joseph's head and suffocated him. He strangled Julie as she begged for the life of her children. He took nine-year-old Joseph Jr. to another bedroom and suffocated him with a plastic bag. Then he carried Josephine to the basement and hanged her. After he was caught 31 years later, Raider said that he believed his victims would become his sex slaves in the afterlife. Three months later in April, he broke into a home in Wichita. He had seen Catherine Bright and was attracted to her. He didn't know it, but her brother was staying with her when he broke into the house and forced them to tie each other up. His plan was to strangle Catherine, but her brother got loose and Raider shot him in the head. Then he turned his attention to Catherine and began to strangle her, but her brother wasn't dead. He tried to help his sister, so Raider shot him again. He still didn't die and ran out of the house calling for help. Raider panicked and stabbed Catherine 11 times. She died at the hospital five hours later. In October of that year, Raider called a reporter at the Wichita Eagle 
and told him to look inside a certain mechanical engineering textbook in the Wichita Public Library. They found a letter that detailed the Otero killings and promised that there would be more. He signed the letter, yours truly, guiltily. Then he added a P.S. Since sex criminals do not change their M.O., or by nature cannot do so, I will not change mine. The code word for me will be bind them, torture them, kill them. B-T-K. You will see him at it again. There will be a next victim. The letter contained numerous spelling and grammatical errors, but it was obvious those were intentional to try to deceive the audience because he did use proper medical terminology and spell it correctly. Rader waited for three years to strike again. In March 1977, Rader had picked out his next victim, Shirley Vian. He saw her son walking on the street and showed him a picture and asked directions to a woman's house. The child took him to his door, and when his mother answered, Rader claimed to need directions, and then he pulled a gun, forcing his way into the house. He tied up Shirley and then locked her three children in the closet. He strangled her. He said he had planned to kill the children, too, since they had seen him, but they had managed to escape and called the police. Nine months later, the police received a call from a downtown telephone booth. Go to this address, he said, giving them an address. You will find a homicide, Nancy Fox. The police rushed to the scene and found her dead in her bedroom, a nylon stocking twisted around her neck. By now, Wichita was in a panic. People began buying firearms. They would check their phone lines before entering the house just to make sure that BTK, as he was now known, hadn't cut them, since that was part of his M.O. And then, suddenly, the killing stopped. But the letters didn't. In January 1978, he sent a letter to the newspaper with a short poem about Shirley Vion. He was upset that there wasn't more public attention by the police and media. So on February 10th, he wrote a letter to a television station. How many times do I have to kill before I get my name in the paper or some national attention? He asked. He claimed to have killed seven victims. He blamed the crimes on a demon and something he called Factor X. He compared himself to Jack the Ripper, the Hillside Strangler, and the son of Sam. On April 28, 1979, he set his sights on another victim, a 63-year-old woman. He broke into her house and waited, but she was late coming home. He finally left, but left behind a note. Be glad you weren't here, the note read, because I was. He also left a poem that he had written. Oh, Anna, why didn't you appear? Then, nothing. The police assembled a task force. The FBI profiled BTK and declared he was probably in his 20s or early 30s and that he may have had an arrest record for breaking and entering. They said he was a loner. They got the age right, but nothing else. The police said that the killings probably stopped because he had either died or was in a mental institution 
or had been arrested for something else, or maybe he just got scared. They were wrong on all counts. It wasn't over. In 1986, he killed Marge Hedge. He took her body to the church and photographed her in various bondage positions before dumping her in a ditch. His last victim, Dolores Davis, was found under a bridge in Park City. He killed her in January of 1991. He strangled her with her pantyhose. Thirteen years later, 2004. A letter arrived at the Wichita Eagle Beacon claiming responsibility for the 1986 murder of Vicki Wordley. The mother of two was strangled in her own home while one of her other children was there. The letter contained Polaroids of the crime scene and Wordley's body and a copy of her missing driver's license. The return address on the envelope read Bill Thomas Kilman, BTK. The address on the envelope turned out to be a vacant lot. Then in May, another letter arrived, this time containing some clues to his identity. Why did he resurface? Did he miss the attention, or was he about to kill again? In October 2004, Raider dropped a package addressed to police in a UPS drop box. He threatened to kill the lead investigator. In December of that year, police found a package in a park that had Nancy Fox's driver's license and a doll bound at the feet with a bag over its head. He left another package at a Home Depot store with another note and another doll. But this time, a surveillance tape saw a shadowy figure walk away from the mailbox and get into a black Jeep Cherokee. Raider then wrote the police and asked them if he sent them a letter on a floppy disk, could they trace it? The police assured them that the disk would be untraceable, so he sent the disk to a TV station. When the police examined it, they were able to find metadata with the words Christ Lutheran Church. They also found that the document was last modified by someone named Dennis. They checked with the church found out that Dennis Rader was the president of the congregation. Then they drove by his house and saw a black Jeep Cherokee. They were closing in. They obtained a search warrant to test a pap smear that his daughter had taken when she was a student at Kansas State. It showed a familial match with DNA that was also found under Vicki Wergley's fingernails. On February 25, 2005, the police arrested Dennis Rader. Mr. Rader, do you know why you're going downtown? The officer asked. Oh, I have my suspicions why, he replied. Wichita Police Chief Norman Willis announced, the bottom line, BTK is arrested. He was charged with 10 counts of first-degree murder, and his bond was set at $10 million. At his initial hearing, he remained silent, and so the judge entered a plea of not guilty on his behalf, and set a trial date for June 27th. Rader appeared at the trial, but before it began, he pleaded guilty to all 10 murders and gave details on all of the crimes in open court. He called the crimes his projects. He talked about bringing his hit kit with him on his projects, 
a duffel bag that contained ropes, knives, plastic bags, and guns. He was very matter-of-fact and never expressed remorse for the killings. Because Kansas did not have the death penalty at the time the murders were committed, Rader was sentenced to the maximum, 10 consecutive life sentences with a minimum of 175 years. He is still in prison today in El Dorado, Kansas. Robert Mendoza, a psychologist who was hired by Raider's court-appointed defenders, diagnosed him with narcissistic, antisocial, and obsessive-compulsive personality disorders. He has a grandoy sense of self, the report said, a belief that he is special, a pathological need for attention, a preoccupation with maintaining rigid order, and a complete lack of empathy. Like Ted Bundy and other serial killers, Raider has been described by police and prosecutors as the personification of evil. At his sentencing hearing, Police Lieutenant Ken Landwehr said that Raider's case was different from other serial killers because of the length of time between murders. Other than that, Lieutenant Landwehr said, there's nothing special about him. That probably cut Raider deeper than any other characterizations could have. Thank you, Dad. Such a, uh, probably the craziest uh, crime we've had this close to home, do you think? I think so. I mean, we, we had Bob Berdella a few weeks ago, but I think Raider, uh, Raider's case uh, trumps that one even, just, just because it went on for so long and uh, just his, his arrogance of taunting the police. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's probably what got him caught when he, <laughs> when he actually asked the police, if I send a floppy disk, can you trace it? Right. And uh, the officer told him no. And Raider, in a in an inter- he's given one interview, and he said that really upset him more than anything else that the police lied to him. Yeah, he could not believe. He he asked them, "Why did you lie to me?" And they were like, "Because we wanted to catch you." <laughs> Didn't well. We can talk about this later. Yeah. But um, I have questions. Okay. But first. We have our Trends of the Crime section, and this is the part of our show where I tell you all about the fashion that was in vogue during the time of the crime. And um, we've done 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s. So I decided, let's just go with the 70s. I feel like it's been a bit since we did the 70s. Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought I'd kind of do what we did last week and do 70s fashion that's in today. And I found an article called 22 Very Old Trends I'm Still Wearing Today by Hannah Almasi for whowhatwear.com. First, we have headscarves. What famous lady that I love wore headscarves, Dad? Oh, my. Uh, Headscarves that you loved, famous. She was not an actress or a singer. I don't know. Jackie Onassis. Oh, okay, okay. Her headscarves and sunglasses. Yes, that's true. 
obviously. <laughs> and then we have smocking and shuring. I don't know exactly what this means, but through pictures, it looks like the shirt I'm wearing right this second. So, like the back of it. Okay, I see it. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's what it is. I know none of you can see, but <laughs> Google it. <laughs> Next, we have pearls. Always a classic. I didn't know if I should put that on here, but because pearls never go out of style. And then we have the wrap dress. And do you know who invented the wrap dress, Dad? I do not know that either, no. Diane von Furstenberg. Oh, okay. Ring any bells? I do not know who that is okay. either. I'm sorry <laughs> for that. Famous fashion designer still around today. And she invented the wrap dress, and it has been a staple since the 70s. Then we have tonal dressing, uh, the slogan knit. I thought this was interesting. I do love a good slogan knit. That's just a sweater with a word in it. Really cute. The trouser suit. I know what that is. And I know you don't like trouser suits. No, but. <laughs> but they're in. They are. I, uh, in fact, every picture I see of our vice president, that's what she's wearing. Yes, yes. With her chucks and her mm -hmm. pearls. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Next, we have cohorts. What are these? Now, you said cohorts. Yeah. Well, first I thought you said cords, and I was thinking corduroys, no. but you're saying cords. Well, that sounds like coordinates, but I don't know that one either. I'm just like 0 for 4 today. <laughs> what, what are cords? Well, I'm not totally positive, but like the, sh the smocking and the shuring, I think cords. I think it's like coordination, and it's like a matching set. That's what I just said. You said coordinates. I meant coordinated <laughs> clothes, not coordinates on a map. I meant that you coordinate your clothes, so I got that one right. Then you're right. Yes. You're one for four. Sorry. I, when I hear coordinates, I think of, like, battleship. Mm. Then we have over-the-knee boots, mm -hmm. denim dresses, mm -hmm. monochrome dressing, boho dresses, basket bags. Do you know what that is? No, I'm afraid not. I unless it's like basket a unless it's bags. like a purse that looks like a basket. <laughs> exactly. Oh, okay. I knew you could get. So that's kind of like what Dorothy was carrying when she Correct. went down the yellow brick road and and carried uh, Toto in. She was very ahead of her time. Yes. Safari style, neck scarves, pajamas outside of bedtime. Oh, I've seen those forever. I don't know if those have ever gone out of style. And it's very in with COVID. Mm-hmm. Same with the cohorts. Cohorts mm -hmm. PJs is a thing right now. Hmm. Millennial pink, always a good choice, forever and always. Tie-dye and crochet, feathers, green floral. And that's what you have on right I'm now. Wearing. Okay. This says dresses, but I'm wearing a shirt. And then we have hippie jewelry. And lastly, we have 1970s style icons. I had to put Jane Fonda on here because she still is a style icon, mm -hmm. but she really, really was in the 70s. And we have Sonny and Cher, of course. Princess Anne. Very cute dresser. Diana Ross, Stevie Nicks, and Farrah Fawcett. Now, what about Jackie O? 
Jackie O, yes. As could, as I was speaking, I realized I she needed to be on this list. There's that famous picture of her in Life magazine walking down the street with her uh, sunglasses on top of her head, and she had grown her hair very long, and that's just an iconic 1970s picture. Yep. She should be high up on the list. Mm-hmm. My apologies. I even talked about her. You did. <laughs> Tell us about the cocktail. Cocktail today is called the Horse Feather. And the horse feather was invented in the early 1990s in your town of Lawrence, Kansas. Whoop, whoop. Uh, the horse feather is a take on a Moscow mule. Moscow mule, of course, is a little bit of lime, uh, a shot of vodka topped with some ginger beer. Well, the horse feather, uh, we're going to use bourbon or rye whiskey. And instead of a squeeze of lime juice, we're putting in a squeeze of lemon juice. And then we're topping it with with ginger beer or club soda, some some carbonated beverage. So it's uh, uh it's going to be a little bit uh, sweeter probably than a Moscow Mule because of the bourbon, or if we use rye, a little bit spicier, more flavorful, I think. So that's uh, that's our homegrown Kansas cocktail, and of course we'll be we'll be using George Remus, which is a good uh, Kansas whiskey. I think you've made me a horse feather before. Sounds very familiar and delicious. He's nodding his head. He has never made me a horse feather. I'd never even heard of the <laughs> horse feather until about three days ago when I was researching the uh, cocktail for this podcast. So, And I meant to say shaking his head. Sorry. But, um, well, <laughs> maybe I'm thinking of something with bourbon that has to do with the Kentucky Derby because you said horse and it was just the Kentucky Derby. That would be a mint julep. That must be what I'm thinking. <laughs> Horses, uh, you know, same diff. Well, it sounds really good. I look forward to trying it. I want to ask the question that I was going to ask earlier before Trends of the Crime. Okay. Didn't Dennis Rader, like, idolize law enforcement and the police in a way, or he wanted to be one of them. Yeah, his his uh, degree was in uh, the administration of justice, which is a, a typical degree that that people get when they want to, you know, go into some sort of uh, police work or um, you know some sort of court work of some sort. I didn't find anything that indicated he ever did any um, that he ever applied for the Wichita Police Department. But when they were doing the profiles. Uh, that's what one person said, that he might have been a, a police officer or a former police officer. And uh, so back in the late 70s, early 80s, when they were profiling him, uh, actually the the uh, Wichita Police Force went through um, their records of everybody who had worked for the police for about the last 20 years to see if they could come up with a suspect and couldn't. But uh, yeah, I, I think he... He must have had some interest in it, and I don't know why he never applied. Um, yeah, but he did. He did uh, go to work for Park City and become a code enforcer. So he got to carry a little badge around and was in a position of authority and could issue citations. Though one person called him a glorified dog catcher. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I, th- I think he um, he had studied it in college, and he probably studied their tactics. Uh, at one point, he said, yeah, the, there, there's nobody, 
There are no Harvard graduates working for the Wichita Police Department, so he felt pretty confident that he was not going to get caught. Mm-hmm. Even in his the trial where he was confessing and giving details, he spoke like a law enforcement officer to me. Mm-hmm. He just sounded like I was I was painting while I was listening to these and at there were points where I didn't know if he was talking or if it was an attorney or the judge, like just the the words he used and the lack of emotion. It was so matter of fact and so this is what happened. That's it. I yeah. did this. He had the jargon down. It did sound it sounded like he was reading from a police report. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why that that first note seemed so strange. Uh because he was using words like psychotic and and uh, the criminal mind and he was spelling them right and using them in the right context but then he was he was in in some places using terrible grammar and misspelling simple words not because he couldn't spell or couldn't write he could write very well he just tried to throw the police off by making it sound like he was uneducated mm-hmm. and he wasn't he's a college graduate right i find his upbringing interesting because Normally, we see with serial killers some abuse, um, some big traumatic event. He didn't really have that. Uh, he just didn't get the attention he felt he was entitled to, and he harbored resentment for it. And I think what's so interesting and scary about that is, I mean, you could you could be born with with something that makes you want to do things like this and that's kind of scary yeah and i looking looking at him and the reports we've read that seems like that's exactly what it was i mean he didn't have a traumatic event as you said and but even from early ages he was harboring fantasies of of kidnapping women and tying them up and torturing them and uh you know that's how he got his sexual fulfillment and killing animals is always a bad sign Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm Always a bad sign. You you would have spent some time in Wichita during this 31-year time span. I did. I would have been in Wichita during this 31-year mm-hmm. time span. Because it was so spread apart, were you ever there when there was some hysteria about this? Or, or whenever you went to Wichita, was no one really thinking about it at that time? Was mom scared? I actually remember your your grandmother cautioning us whenever we would go go out to be careful. Don't let anyone follow you. If you see anyone following you, call the police. Um, So I I I do remember the. um, I don't know. I did. I didn't think of it as hysteria at the time, but it, it was people were certainly being very very cautious because this was a this was a scary time. And uh, then it just stopped. And uh, I think a lot of people just assume, well, he's, we probably thought he was either dead or in jail for something else. Didn't think of him again until really the early 2000s. Wow. I also read somewhere that he was only killing women with long hair. So 
people were cutting their hair, like women were cutting their hair and to try and avoid being kidnapped by him? I, I hadn't read that. I have seen pictures of some of the victims and uh, my, at least the pictures I've seen of some of them, they didn't all have long hair, mm-hmm. but they may have been pictures like high school graduation pictures. Right. So maybe by then they did. I mean, that that's what people, that's how young women were wearing their hair in the 70s. They were mm-hmm. wearing it long. So that could very well be. And that could have been like a rumor that went around, you know, how misinformation and there was no social media back then. Right. So someone could have just said that and then everyone started cutting their hair. Of course, the last two women he killed, uh, I believe one was in her 50s and one was in her 60s. I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. And people people think that maybe he did that because he was trying <coughs> to throw the police off. Oh. Remember that first letter he wrote, serial killers have an M.O. I'm not going to change my M.O. And up to then, it had been younger women that he had killed in their home and left their bodies in their home. But the last two, they were older. Um, and... Uh, he dumped their bodies one in a one in a ditch and one under a bridge, and he well, in fact, he did admit I did that because I wanted to try to throw the police off. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure it worked. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that he killed any more than the ten and just didn't admit to it so he could avoid the death penalty? I. I suppose it's possible, but the police don't seem to think so. The prosecutors didn't seem to think so, and. He was very uh, he was very open about what he did and seemed proud of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but if he did kill anyone after 1994, then he would have been subject to the death penalty. Right. So it's it's a, it's possible, but I just find it so odd that he had all that time in between murders mm-hmm. and then in between the last one supposedly and when he got caught. Mm-hmm. Weird guy. Changing up all the rules. Yeah, the murders went on for, well, for 17 years, the murders went on. And then it was 31 years after the first murder when he was finally caught. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he just laid low for years and years. Yep. Yeah. I was thinking about some of the similarities between him and some of the other serial killers like like Ted Bundy and and Dahmer. And some of the differences. I mean, obviously, one of the big differences is the length of time between the killings. Right. He didn't seem to keep souvenirs of his victims mm-hmm. uh, like they did uh, until the end. Evidently, with the last victim, he put her under the bridge. He was going to bury her. In fact, he had dug a shallow grave and was going to bury her, but was having trouble. And he was late for a Boy Scout meeting, so he just left her there. Mm-hmm. So he could not, so he could get to his Boy Scout meeting, and then they said he came back the next day, and he had actually taken some of her clothes with him and put some of her clothes on, and had a mask made up to kind of look like her face and a wig, and went back to the body and planned to, um, oh, how do I say this? <laughs> Plan to plan to engage in some sexual acts with the body, but overnight, of course, being under a bridge, uh, some animals had had evidently got to the body, and he said he was disgusted by that. So maybe toward the end, he was behaving more like a uh, a serial killer. Yeah, um, but I don't think the police ever found any totems or any 
They did find one pair of pantyhose that he might have used to strangle one woman, but he wasn't, uh, evidently the memory was enough for him. He didn't need a lot of objects. Yeah, and maybe by the end, maybe he was getting, being less cautious about being caught. I Mm -hmm. don't know. Yeah, I mean, I suppose after 17 years, you're thinking, well, they're probably never going to catch me. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. In fact, with the murders, he wasn't being that careless. Mm-hmm. It was it was with those letters that he started sending right. out. Right. Uh, that's what that's what got him caught. I think it was. I don't think he ever would have been caught if he didn't. Well, if he didn't re- ask them if they could trace the floppy disk, mm-hmm. I don't think he mm-hmm. ever would have been caught. But part of me wonders if he wanted to be caught so that everyone would know it was him. Yeah, I think that's a. I think that's a possibility. I. I think he he wanted the notoriety. Well, one of the letters he wrote early on is why why is why am I not being mentioned in the media? Right. Why don't I have any national attention? Just a very very disturbed, very very sick, very very evil man. Mm-hmm. He needed all eyes on him. Apparently, yeah. I have an a very interesting side story that happened along along. The BTK killings. Okay. Did you read all this in my outline yet? No. Okay, don't. Okay. (laughs) Ruth Finley, a 47-year-old phone company employee in Wichita, received an ominous phone call one night while she was home alone. Her husband, Ed, had just had a heart attack, so he was in the hospital. Don't worry, Ed lives. Okay. But she had never spent a night away from Ed. And then he was in the hospital for... I don't know, days, weeks, something like that. The man on the phone told her that he knew about the night she was attacked when she was 16. He was a construction worker and claimed he found an article about her attack in one of the walls. He threatened to tell everyone about the attack if she didn't give him money. And in this attack, she had been branded on both of her thighs. So he was saying he was going to tell people about it unless she gave him money. She was like, I don't know what you're talking about, and hung up the phone. Later that summer, at her work, Ruth started getting letters from this man, she assumed, and more phone calls at home. And then a man approached Ruth on the street, haggling her about her job and asking her to go to Vegas with him. Uh, And then Ed, and like I said, he lived, so he's been home for a while now. Ed then took her to the police so she could report the letters, the calls, and that guy, the creepy guy on the street. Since BTK was known to send threatening letters, the police did look into Ruth's case. They were like, oh, weird. He's like sending her letters directly. This is weird. She must be the next victim. Keywords and phrases in Ruth's letters matched with BTK's letters, and the police feared that she was next. In 1979, Ruth was leaving Dillard's and was abducted and stabbed. She was stabbed in the back, in the side, uh, and if the knife had gone any deeper into her side, she would have died. So when she arrived at the hospital, it was in the side. The knife was in her side. And the nurse told the police that a man fitting her dis- Ruth's description of her attacker visited the hospital and asked if Ruth was okay. So the police kept a close watch for 48 hours, but nothing ever happened. The case was taken over by a new detective in 1980. He had no personal ties to Ruth or her husband. He didn't know the family. 
So he immediately thought one of them was the poet mm-hmm. writing her the letters. But he changed his mind after reviewing the medical report and decided that Ruth wouldn't have stabbed herself at that angle. Mm-hmm. After increased frequency of the letters and a threat to his own wife by the poet, the Wichita police chief came to the conclusion that Ruth was, in fact, the poet on September 11th, 1981. Mm. There's a lot more to this story. I'm just trying to get to the point. Okay. So Ruth was doing this to herself. Mm -hmm. Dun, dun, dun. Mm -hmm. And a few points of evidence. There's more, but I couldn't talk on those because I didn't talk about them earlier. Uh, There had never been a witness to any of Ruth's encounters with the poet, even though they happened in public, like on the Wichita streets in broad Mm -hmm. daylight. Mm -hmm. But no one ever saw a man come up to Ruth. So he was like, "Uh, duh, you guys, there was no man. Ruth and Ed lived on a dead-end street with little traffic, but no neighbors or police had ever seen the poet or a man. And the police would stay there overnight. Ruth called the Central Investigations Office in the police department when she was stabbed instead of calling 911. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So police finally surveilled Ruth and eventually caught her mailing the letters. So they saw her put a letter in the mailbox and immediately after she walked away, grabbed like a, the top pile of letters or something and saw that it was addressed to her with no return address and same handwriting, yada, yada, yada. Uh, that's the story, essentially. I just thought that was really interesting. And the attack when she was 16 was mm-hmm. real. Mm-hmm. So I think she had some PTSD and was... Because she ha- had a lot of remorse for doing this. Mm-hmm. And this made national news. Like, people were scared for her. And she was doing it. Yeah. I mean, those things happen. Almost any time there's a... A lot of publicity about a serial killer. You're going to have a lot of people claim credit for it. And and, I think in other cases, we've had victims, you know, claim they were targeted. Turns out they were sending the letters themselves. They were making the phone calls themselves. So Mm -hmm. obviously we've got some pretty deep psychological scars and issues going on there. Yeah. And this uh, article is called... The Poet, and it's by Corey Mead on Medium.com. And it's a really great read. And I heard of it because they covered this on My Favorite Murder and uh, very recently. And it's so crazy, like the way the article is laid out. You really think it's someone else. Mm-hmm. And it's like you're watching a movie. It's a huge twist. I would highly recommend the article. Okay. Yeah, I just thought that was a funny, like, Side aside that happened revolving around BTK and Wichita that made national news. Right. And and were people assuming it was BTK or thinking it was BTK? A lot of people were afraid it was it was yeah. BTK. Um Yeah, the one thing that, that would have immediately gone off in my mind on why it wasn't is that, that wasn't his MO back in the seventies. He mm-hmm. wasn't stabbing people. You know, he liked to he'd like to tie them up, he would suffocate them or strangle them and then stop. Mm-hmm. And let them let them come back, let them regain consciousness. Evidently, he really got off listening to people beg, mm-hmm. and you know, so it, the, these weren't quick deaths. He, we talk about the tying up, we talk about the killing, but there was a lot of torture involved as well. And something else I noticed about him when he was confessing, 
mm-hmm. is that he would talk as if like he'd be like, she was really upset. So I calmed her down. I talked to her. We sat down and we talked like he almost made it was trying to make it sound like he was good to these people and was. I know I killed them, but at least I helped calm her down and. Just disgusting. Yeah. Here's what one of the psychologists said, a guy named Michael Wellner, said in cases like BTK, it's clear that he intended to emotionally traumatize the victims and cause gross suffering. It was clear in the way he communicated with the media that he intended to terrorize not only the victims, but the community and clear that he got a thrill. So even if he wasn't killing in 2004, when he started sending those letters, that was probably a good substitute for him because he was terrorizing people all over again, making them relive it, making the families relive everything. Mm -hmm. Um, hmm. Yep. He was something else. And again, it's about control. We've talked about that with almost every serial killer. Mm -hmm. He wants to control them. And yep. it was about possessing. And, um, you know, and when, when you get into this whole afterlife thing that he was talking about, too, again, that was that's something we haven't seen before. Well, uh, especially because he was not raping these people, no, these women. No, no. So, Evidently, which I found yeah. odd because. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I think what he was thinking is by killing them, I'm gaining power over them for eternity. Huh. And, uh, you know, with the Otero family, his first victims, he he had roles for all of them in the afterlife. You know, he was going to, uh, they all would have roles for serving him. Do you think he still believes all of this? I don't know. Don't know. Hmm. Well, he's in El Dorado. I suppose you could, could go you ask. Could go ask. No, not we. <laughs> you could go ask if you I'm wanted I'm not going to. alone. <laughs> Something tells me they don't let him see many visitors. No. Uh, for for the first uh, decade, at least, of his imprisonment, he was in solitary confinement. Yeah, for his protection. Yeah, for his protection. I think they, they he got three showers. They let him out three days a week for showering and exercise. Wow. Other than that, he was in a cell by himself. I don't know if that's still the case. Hmm. He would be... Since the 70s. Yes, he was born in 46, I think, or 45, so he'd be late 70s 76. now, 76 years old. Yeah. 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 Hmm. Maybe one day I'll get real brave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. Well, I'm not sure who we have next week. Do you have your... Um... I do not, but I will. Well, while you're looking, I will tell everyone about our exciting show coming up. Please do. We are doing a live performance at Alibi, a true crime pop-up bar in Kansas City. Uh, The address is 4118 Pennsylvania Avenue in Kansas City, Missouri. We are doing a live show on Sunday, May 23rd at 8 p.m. And it's going to be a lot of fun. If you can't make it, Uh, We will be recording, and that will be our season finale episode going live on the 26th. So we are very excited. There's going to be a few giveaways at the show, and it is completely free. You will have to buy your own drinks, but getting in is totally free. There is not even a cover charge. 
So come on down. It's a fun place. They've got some great uh, decorations up. And my understanding is, and I think this is cool, um, this is a pop-up bar. So they're only going to be open for a short time. And uh, when they close, they're going to be auctioning off all this great art that they have up. And the the proceeds are uh, going to go to a victim's fund. So they're auctioning off all of the art to Newhouse, and it's currently the oldest domestic violence charity in Kansas City. They are celebrating 50 years this year. Well, that, that'll be a great thing for you to come out and support, you yep. know, because as we try to talk about every week on our podcast, you know, we, we're not here to glorify people like Dennis Rader. I mean, it's interesting, but uh, 10 people, most of them younger people. And in fact, two children lost their lives because of this uh, this sick, evil man. And uh, what did what has the world lost? We'll never know. Yep. Well, I believe next week we are uh, we're going back about uh, seventy years to nineteen forty five. And if we want to talk about evil, I think it's clear we are going to be talking about the most evil person that this world may have ever seen, uh, and that's Adolf Hitler. And uh, the question is, did Hitler die in that bunker in 1945 in Berlin, or did he escape? So if you're into conspiracy theories, we certainly would like to have your your opinion on that. So I think we're going to have a special guest next week, someone who's done a a lot of research into what, uh, what is commonly now called the rat line which is the uh, the way a lot of Nazis escaped from Germany and made it made their way to South America. So uh, we are going to be talking about that next week. Should be very interesting. I'm excited. Yes. All right. Well, thank you all for listening, and we will see you next week, and hopefully we will see you live and in person at Alibi on Sunday, May 23rd at 8 p.m. That's right. See you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. If you're enjoying our show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. Join our VIP Facebook group, Cocktails of Crime and Fashion VIP, to discuss cocktails, crime, and fashion, and to watch exclusive video content. Follow us on Instagram at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. We also have merch. There's a link in the episode notes. Cocktails of Crime and Fashion was written and produced by Mike Norland and Macy Norland Burkett. Our editor is Don Bailey at pretendmachine.com. Thank you to Alex Joaquim for composing our theme music and to Kaylee Bitter for designing our cover art. <laughs>